Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello, welcome back to the show. Great to have you along. And I'm really looking forward to today's conversation with Paul DeVoy. Paul is CEO of Investors in People. At Investors in People, they have one mission, which is to make work better. And their research experience and work in these important areas they cover, it's made work better for over 11 million people globally over the last, I think, 30 years. So it's been an amazing impact. And Paul led the buyout of Investors in People from the UK government in 2016. And it became a community interest company in February 2017, which means it's run for the benefit of the community of employers and individuals that it serves. So some fascinating HR stuff, this fascinating business stuff. But firstly, Paul, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks very much, Ben. Thank you for inviting me along. Yeah. And you are just outside of Edinburgh, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Context. Very good. Yeah. So it's an amazing story. And I'd love to get into the transformation of what you've done over the course of your time at Investors and People. But firstly, for people who are outside the UK, particularly, or from areas where they have not heard of Investors and People, what exactly does Investors and People do? Yeah, thank you. Investors and People, our purpose is to make work better. And the way that we do that is we set standards for what good people management looks like. And we have a community organisations who have a long-term commitment to working to those standards. And we bring the community together to learn from each other, to share best practice so that everyone in the community can improve their performance together. So it's not about league tables and top 100 of this or top 100 of that. It's a community who all believe that investing in the people and their people is the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do for business results. And you say community, it's a big community, right? I think. Yeah, 1.2 million people in the UK are employed by an investors and people organisation. Generally, we don't accredit organisation of less than five employees. So we reckon it's around about one in 20 of every employee. Our ambition is to get to one in 10. Wow. That's impressive. So that's how you make an impact is to be able to reach all these different organisations. They're employing people and then you're creating or through the accreditation yeah. system, setting certain benchmarks or... Yeah, we do the heavy lifting in terms of doing the research into what good people management looks like and developing standards around that. And then the organisations in our community commit to working to those standards and measure themselves against them. And then we help them improve by bringing people from the community together to share best practice, learn from each other, network with each other. And the framework or the standard acts as the kind of basis that they all use, the benchmark they all use to learn from each other. Can I ask, so when you say standards, uh, you know, sometimes standards in different industries or industry bodies, let's say, whether that be the US, UK, Australia, yeah. wherever it may be. Sometimes HR leaders, HR people might say, well, these standards are not up to scratch or they're not relevant. How do you make sure that they are applicable or they keep pushing forwards? Yeah. So when we developed the standard originally back in 2015, we did a review of 300 pieces of academic research that's related to high performance working practices. We then spent 18 months consulting with over 1,200 organisations in the UK and internationally on, you know, what good looked like. And then periodically we go back, we're doing it right at this minute, we go back and we do analysis of the research about workplaces that's out there, do a meta-analysis of that. 
and then adjust the framework according to what the latest trends and latest research is. We also have millions of people obviously filling out our surveys every year. We've got thousands of reports of organisations that we work with and we analyse them to make sure that we understand what the trends are. So it's constantly evolving and constantly improving. Wow. I suspect that someone like you and an organisation like yours, you get to enjoy standing back and looking at the big picture because you've got all this data coming in and for the HR person in an office, filling out a form or whatever it may be, they see their little section, but you guys must see a whole different view, right? Yeah, I'm hugely inspired by the people that, particularly the leaders that sign up to be part of your community because having an independent organisation come in and hold their mirror up to you and tell you how good you are as a leader, you know, you have to have quite a high degree of emotional intelligence to subject yourself to that. We do it in a very facilitative and constructive way. It's not about, you know, putting anybody in a difficult spot, but it still requires a degree of emotional intelligence to have that level of external scrutiny. And it's voluntary. It's not a requirement. People volunteer for it. So clearly they see value in it and they can see their organisation improving as a result. So they value the feedback. You just took me back to my different HR roles in manufacturing companies where I'd have to go around as the HR guy and do safety audits. And I'd put on my high-vis vest and safety hat and stuff. And I'd go around to different work areas and tell them all the stuff that they'd done wrong, which is, I guess, the wrong way to do things. And obviously it evolved. We definitely don't do it that way. The main thing we want to do is celebrate their strengths and help them yes. maximize their strengths. Yeah. But if there are areas where we feel that they can improve, because we're working with thousands of organizations every year, and we've got lots of examples of best practice that we can share, then our aim is to help them improve. It's not about making anybody feel bad about not being good at X or Y. It's about taking them on a journey of improvement that they can see the progress they're making year on year. And if someone goes through the process, they realize that either there are gaps or perhaps that they are falling behind or not moving as quickly as others in a sector and they can see changes are coming down the road, can they turn to you, investors and people, for advice or help in those areas? We are happy to give advice, but we are not a consultancy organization. And I think it's really important to iterate that. So you get consultants that come along and give you a free diagnostic in order to sell you something off the back. Yeah. That is absolutely not what we do. So we're independent. We give you independent feedback. We'll give you advice on the things that, and that's a big part of the report that we write at the end, what you need to improve on and what you might need to think about and sharing ideas that we've learned from other places about what works and what doesn't. But certainly we're not going to come along and say, oh, you've got a leadership problem coming by the Investors and People Leadership Programme. We feel that that's a massive conflict of interest and we wouldn't do that. So our clients value that because they know that we're not going in there to use our diagnostic as a tool to sell them on other stuff. You know, they can trust that we're acting independently and with their best interests at heart. We're not looking to sell them consultancy off the back of it. Yeah, that's really good. And that kind of flows into the thing I mentioned earlier about the fact that you led the buyout of investors and people from the UK government. So can you give people some context? What exactly happened there? Why was it a government-led organization and why the buyer? And what was the the driving force behind all that? So investing people started 30 years ago, and it was a government initiative. And the government in the 90s, I reckon, if you work out annually what they were investing in grants for employers and the development of the organization, I think they must have invested hundreds of millions of pounds in setting it up during the 90s and the early noughties. And it became huge. Like every organisation in the public sector in the UK had to have it by the millennium. That was a government edict. But what happened was, we all things with government, once they got into the mid-noughties and we had the financial crash, etc., 
then obviously austerity came and the government chose not to continue to invest in it anymore. So I was brought in to essentially wean it off public funding and turn it into a sustainable business. So between 2012 and 2015, we turned it into a sustainable business by it became a franchise model. So instead of organisations getting grants to do the accreditation, they paid for it and we had franchise partners who delivered it on our behalf on the ground. So through that process, we became financially independent. And then another thing that government likes to do, the agency that we were part of, the government decided to close it down as part of its bonfire of the Quangos. And I led the buyout of it from the government. It could have went into become a private company, but I didn't believe that that was the right thing. I very much felt that investors and people was a wider social good for the country as a whole and that we could create a sustainable organisation that could have a positive impact on society, but without costing the taxpayer any money. And therefore, I spent the best part of two years influencing the government that it should become a social enterprise and that we should run it in that vein. Are you some sort of tricky Gordon Gecko character who just pocketed a big bonus for taking it private? Or No, no, not at all. Personally, I probably, if I had you know, led a commercial back buy out and went and got a private equity company to finance. I would probably be sitting in a yacht in Marbella now, but I just didn't believe that was the right thing to do. I think it's a wider social good for the country, and I don't think it would be as successful as it can and should be if it was just run for profit. I think the obvious thing any commercial organisation would have done would have turned it into a consultancy firm. I was just going to ask, yeah. But there's no shortage of consultancy firms out there. There's loads of them, and lots of them do a very good job. That isn't what we do. We help organisations benchmark best practice and independently help them set high standards for people management and work towards them and have a long-term commitment to that. No one else does that. And I felt that if I had been sold, it would have been the easy play, would have been turning it into a consultancy and that was the wrong thing to do. Surely there was someone else saying to you, come on, Paul, let's add consulting. Over the last 10 years I've been in this job, I have had that constantly and I've always resisted it. If you look at what's happened with the big four consultancies in the UK, when they've tried to play both sides, they've tried to be an auditor and they've tried to have consultancy and look at the scandals and how bad their brand has been tarnished by that approach. I just don't think you can have your cake and eat it. You know, our background has always been in accreditation and insight and building a community organisations who believe in investing in people. That's where our strength lies. That's our unique value proposition. I accept it's probably not as lucrative as consultancy, but I believe it's the authentic and legitimate area where we can add value that no one else has. Yeah, I love that. You're reminding me, I think it's the hedgehog principle. I forget which book it is, but it's around focusing. The hedgehog doesn't run fast. It doesn't jump over hedges and stuff. It just rolls up into a ball. It's got spikes. So if it's attacked by a fox or whatever, it rolls up. It's safe, but it's just really, really good at that. And it sounds like that's what you've taken here. You've got something that you're really, really good at. Yeah. And I think the one that I remember as people used to talk about is a clear blue water strategy. So you've got a blood red ocean, a consultancy, where there's loads of people playing in that space, all eating each other. And we could, if we had went into that, might have done okay. But the clear blue water is around setting high standards for good people management, building a community who all believe in that. No one else is doing that. And we're good at that. And therefore, we need to be as good at that as that as we possibly can be. Someone said to me once, it's a bit like someone telling David Beckham to just work on your left foot because it's not as good as your right. 
And actually, he just concentrated on making his right foot the best right foot in world football. So I think, you know, that's the kind of philosophy I have for it. You know, we need to be really good at, you know, the kind of David Beckham principle, making your right foot because it can be rather worrying about your left. Play to your strengths. No, absolutely. And I was sort of smiling as you were talking about the conflict of interest because as an Aussie, there's a big scandal featuring PwC in Australia at the moment where they were advising government policy and at the same time selling on the outputs of that advisory work to yeah. their clients to say, look, we can get you in the door. So, And everyone says, oh, we'll have Chinese walls and we'll do this yeah. and we'll do that. And, you know, there's so much inherent conflict in it that it's never as straightforward as that. Yeah. Can I ask, so you made that decision and you've been bombarded ever since, but as the leader and the commercial leader, you then had to work out, well, how do we produce income revenue for this business? So you've got the accreditation process where people are paying rather than doing grants, but are you doing other things? Whether that be conferences? Yeah, so we have an annual award ceremony and we have eight, 900 people come along to that every year. Nice. And we run events, but generally for our community, we don't charge for the events. So the beauty of being a not-for-profit is any surplus that we make is reinvested back into what we do. So I'm in actually quite a luxurious position that I don't have a bunch of shareholders squealing for a dividend of me every year. Yeah. As long as we make a surplus that we can reinvest in our purpose and we make the experience better for our community, we make the awards better for our community, make the events better for our community, then it'll attract more people to our community and then we can invest what we make into making it better, not the money disappearing off somewhere else. Yeah. So that's been really good for us because everything that we do and any surplus we make gets reinvested into making what we do better. So I do accept that I am in quite a luxurious position as far as that's concerned. And how do you position the organization in the face of others either offering standards or you know, maybe competitors? How do you position the organization? Well, very much on the basis of our purpose. Our purpose is to make work better. And everything that we do, every decision we make, anything that we do is in pursuit of that purpose. So in terms of this, the way that we develop our standards, the way that we run events, the way that we do webinars or whatever we do, it's about how do we help our community create an environment where they can be more productive because the UK's productivity is lower than the rest of the G7. We don't invest enough in skills. We don't invest enough in our leaders. And that's having an impact on their prosperity as a country. So we believe that if we can help organisations consistently raise our standards in that area, we'll help create a more prosperous society. And the way that we market ourselves is purely in relation to that, that we're trying to do a wider social good. And we also know for the individuals that organisations who invest in their leaders, have a positive culture, train their staff well, those organisations create better, more well-paid jobs. And therefore, that's good for people in terms of their progression and their career progression. So it's good for society, it's good for organisations, it's good for individuals. So everything that we do is about promoting that philosophy. And to add to what we were discussing before about you have a, a unique perspective, you're getting all this data from organizations and people coming in all the time, and it probably allows you to see trends and themes. What kind of bigger picture issues and stuff do you see either now or coming down the road for HR and the world of work? Yeah, it's quite a few things, but I'll pick the kind of biggest ones just to focus on. If you look at all the research, we don't invest enough in training our managers. There's 2.4 million accidental managers in the UK. That's not one of our stats. That's the Chartered Management Institute stats, but research backs that up. And if you look at productivity performance in the UK, because we don't train our managers well enough, we are less productive. 
because the manager dictate how productive their teams are. It all has an impact on the well-being of their employees. So when anybody asks me, if you've got £100 to spend in terms of training, what do you spend it on? I always say your first-line managers. And that tends not to be where organisations spend their training dollar. Where do they spend it? In the UK, we spend the least of all most European countries on in-work training. And we tend to spend most of it on compliance training, but not enough of it on wider training that's going to improve the capacity and capability of your workforce. So for me, that's one area that we need to think as employers that if we want to have a more productive workforce, because you can't just go out and recruit people anymore. There's a structural deficit in the labour market. We're going to have to improve the skills capability of our existing workforce, and that means investing in them. A lot of employers think, well, if I invest in them, they'll just go down the road and work for someone else. Again, our research doesn't really back that up. If you invest in your people and you've got a good culture and you pay them fairly, then generally they don't move because there's not that many companies like that. <laughs> it's a competitive advantage, sad but true. Yeah. What What are the themes? I know you almost take a philosophical approach sometimes, I suspect, from the stuff you see, whether it be AI and I mean, Industry 4.0, whatever's coming down the line. Yeah. So just one other thing on the kind of development side of things. The other sort of trend that we see that as a kind of received wisdom is that appraisals don't work. So most of the organisations I've worked in have an annual appraisal process. They don't add any value whatsoever based on what we've seen. What adds value is performance conversations in the moment when something good happens or something goes wrong, that there's a coaching conversation that happens in that moment. We're having a black book and logging the good, having a balance sheet of the good and the bad, and then revealing it every three months or every six months, that doesn't work. So that's another kind of key finding that I would True. highlight, that, that invest in your managers and help your managers have transformational conversations with your employees, the two things will drive performance. Right. And what do you think the future holds for investors in people itself as an organisation? Yeah, so our ambition is that one in 10 people in the UK will work for an investors and people organisation. So that's what we are working towards. I don't know how quickly we're going to get there, whether it'll take us three years, five years or 10 years, but that's the North Star that we're working towards because we know that organisation with good leaders, good culture, training their staff, they perform better. We see that as a kind of tipping point. If we can get beyond that one in 10, then it'll get to the point where organisation that you ask themselves, well, if you're not part of this community, then why not? Because mm -hmm. It's incontrovertible why you need to be. And therefore, that's how we can demonstrate as a community interest company that we've actually really had a significant positive impact on society. Right. Now, if I can ask a marketing or business growth type question for independent consultants in the field of HR, whether that's recruitment, diversity, inclusion, whatever it may be, how can they potentially help companies, employers to improve on their accreditation or their scores or their position? based on the investors and people process. So if there are gaps that need to be filled, how can these consulting firms step in and support what you're doing, trying to get that one in 10? I mean, obviously, if they know an organization's got investors and people, then in a way, it's an opportunity for them because we don't sell consultancy. But if they work with them on the areas that we've identified as the areas for potential opportunities for them to improve, then that's an opportunity for them. And the areas that tends to be is around about management and leadership, is around about culture, around about how their long-term approach to training their staff. Job design is an area that lots of organisations are struggling with at the moment, how you structure work, how you deal with the post-pandemic world. They're all the kind of big hot topics. And obviously you've got D&I and ESG, et cetera, are increasingly up, coming up the agenda too. 
Yeah, there's a lot happening. If people want to learn more about investors and people and see what's going on, what should they do next? Very happy for people to contact me directly on LinkedIn. It's Paul Devoy on LinkedIn or on Twitter. I think I'm at Devoy Paul on Twitter. So contact me directly. I always happy to have a conversation or go on our website. If part of your audience are you know, HR consultants or management consultants, we're always looking for people to come and join us as practitioners. We've got 135 self-employed consultants who work for us with our organisation. So if that's something you're interested in, we're always looking to recruit new bright people. What would they be doing? They would be going in and assessing the organisations against our standard. Ah, interesting. Very good. That's always a great opportunity to see what's going on in the industry and the sector and see what's working, what's not working, and then being part of that overall investors and people community that you described earlier. Yeah. Brilliant. And lastly, conferences coming up, anything in the pipeline? Yeah, so we've got a conference in September that Stephen Bartlett's headlining for us, you know, the idea of a CEO. So that's in September. So go on our website if you're interested in coming along to that. Tickets are selling fast, so I'd advise you to get in quick if you're interested in that. We have our annual awards ceremony in November. We'll have probably nearly a 1,000 people come to Billingsgate for that. And we've regularly got webinars and various activities going on. So keep an eye on our website. There's always lots of stuff to get involved in. Fantastic. Well, yeah, if you're listening to this on the go, check the show notes. We'll have Paul's details and the investors and people website and the conference stuff in there as well. But Paul, thank you very much. I think you're doing a great job and I love the impact you're having. So thank you very much for sharing part of that story today. And thanks for inviting me along. It's been fun. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.